Now then, looking to God for his uh, help and guidance, uh, let's turn again to that second passage that we read. In the book of Galatians, and chapter 6, and we'll read again the opening five verses first of all. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another or in comparison with another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let's take together the opening statement in verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and then the statement of verse 5, each one shall bear his own load. Bear one another's burdens, and each one shall bear his own load. Obviously then in these verses there are two weights spoken about, two weights to carry. I think it's easy to miss the connection when you read the verses because there are two different words used for these weights. One is called a burden and the other is called a load. In verse 2 we're to carry each other's burdens. In verse 5 we're to carry our own load. Why the two different words? Well, the simple answer to that is because there are two different Greek words behind them. And whenever you find that, it's better to use two different English words when you translate them. But still, that just pushes the question back. Why are there two different Greek words? Why does the apostle use one word for the weight that we share and another word for the weight that we carry ourselves? It's a good question. The first word, the word that we share, is just a Greek word that just means weight in general, something heavy. But the load that we carry ourselves is used for a particular cargo on a ship or even a pack that you have to carry yourself. The idea is very much something that is confined to one vessel or to one person. Not a weight to be shared, but a weight to be endured or carried just by one vessel of person. Now I want with the Lord's help to look at both these weights. Now, if you feel I'm giving a long time to the first weight, that is because that's where most emphasis will lie. I want us to look particularly at the burden that we're supposed to share. 
but we'll also look at the burden that we carry ourselves and indeed we must look at both or each of both in the light of the other so let's then with God's help do that and we'll begin with the burden that we're supposed to share verse 2 bear one another's burdens you'll notice by the way that in doing so and we'll see this we are fulfilling the law of Christ so Christ calls us to that commands us to carry each other's burdens now who is carrying this burden originally well it is your brother's burden it's your brother's burden and by brother here I don't mean your fellow man or fellow woman I don't mean what the Bible calls neighbour because the Bible does speak about your neighbour it speaks about doing good to your neighbour it speaks about loving your neighbour it even speaks about loving your neighbour as yourself but nonetheless in the Bible your neighbour is not the same as your brother or indeed your sister brother is a particular word used to describe a fellow Christian a fellow Christian pilgrim or traveller because they are in the same family as you, the same spiritual family. They have been born again by the Spirit of God and Christ himself has come to dwell in them as he has come to dwell in you. So indeed has the Spirit of your Father in heaven. You are now a Christian, they are Christians, they are your brothers and they are your sisters. Technically, of course, as we speak, they may be your neighbours, spiritually, they are your brothers. Now here, one brother is being called to carry the burden of another brother. None of that means, by the way, that you can't actually carry or help to share a burden that your neighbour has. Uh, There are many ways in which you are to love your neighbour, according to the scripture, even those who are not believers. You are called to love them nonetheless, and also to carry their burdens. And one way in which you can do that is by praying for them. It is also by helping them. Uh, For example, as the scripture says, even if your enemy thirst, give him to drink. If your enemy, never mind your neighbor, even if your enemy hungers, then give him to eat. So clearly you can alleviate a neighborly burden too. But this is a special reference to a brother alleviating a brother, or of course, sister and sister too. But what is that burden? When the Apostle says, bear or carry each other's burdens, what does he mean by that? Well, I think first of all it's right for us to take it in its most general sense. Pretty much any kind of burden that we are called to carry in God's providence. Your brother or sister could be suffering a particular temptation and its power as a burden at some kind. They could have a burden of loneliness, which is actually very, very common in this particular day when there is far less community, even within the Church of God itself. Carrying a burden of loneliness, a burden of uh, waywardness in their family, which is consuming them, 
It can be a burden of doubt in connection with the word of God or with their own salvation. It can be a burden of poverty that perhaps they're ashamed to make known and perhaps we wouldn't suspect was the case, but maybe they carry that. Maybe it's a burden of grief that sometimes the Lord's people carry and carry for a very long time after a bereavement and are unable to come out from under that burden. It can even be a burden of regret uh, for something done in the past or something not done in the past, something said or not said in the past. It can be a burden of sin, lying on a conscience, unconfessed, a burden of not being able to find forgiveness or a sense of forgiveness from God for what has been said or done in the past. These are all burdens, burdens that the people of God may carry from time to time. Now, let me say first of all that if we have these burdens ourselves, right, I'm, I'm making a distinction between that and our brothers and our sisters having that, but let's suppose, first of all, that we have such a burden ourselves, the right thing to do is to go to the Lord with them. I'm not saying that you can't look elsewhere for help from the Lord's people, because only they can really understand uh, these burdens and the way that they lie on the Christian's mind. But your real help is God. The burden bearer is God himself. And we sang that in the psalm, words that many of us know. And remember and quote, cast thy burden on the Lord. Come to God with it, with your sense of regret or sin or loneliness or grief or whatever it is, cast it on the Lord. And if you learn to do that, and if I learn to do it too, it will be enough. There's enough in God to give us comfort and strength and grace. That's what the text goes on to say. Cast thy burden on the Lord, and he shall thee sustain. God doesn't need supplementing uh, or complementing with anybody else. There is absolutely everything you need for your help and strength in God himself. And that's worth a sermon on its own. And it's vital for me to emphasize that at the outset. Whatever the Bible says here about carrying each other's burdens and sharing each other's burdens, that text remains true that you, if you have it, or I, if I have it, am to cast mine, you to cast yours on the Lord, and he will himself sustain me and he will sustain you. But, nonetheless, it's still a fact that, well, this is the way it operates. God chooses it to operate this way. When you cast your burden upon the Lord, he sometimes does a very interesting thing with it. And what he does with it is this, that he asks another member of your family uh, to carry that burden with you. Now, that is still him taking it, taking the responsibility for it, but as I say, an interesting thing that he does is he takes that burden that lies in you and he calls your brother or sister over there and says, you now 
take a part of that burden. Take that burden. That is my command for you to do as this person's brother or sister. In other words, God's help comes to you by proxy. His form of help is through the help that another brother or sister gives. Sometimes it's easy to overlook that God's help comes through his people. We always expect it to come some other way, but of course we shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise us that God helps in that way. And he lays the burden upon your brother or sister by just calling them to provide for your need or to pray for you in your need. Whatever will do. If you can provide, if it's a material thing that you can help with, to give. If it's not a material thing you can give, well, maybe it's a word that you can speak. Just as we're to pray that we could have what God's servant had in the prophecy of Isaiah. A word in season to speak to the one who is weary. Is that not a good thing to pray for? Not, to, not just even to have a knowledge of the word of God, but to have a knowledge of the word of God that is so alive in your experience and so ready to come from your heart and to come from your lips that, that you're able as a spiritual person, I'll come to this in a second, as a spiritual person just to share it so that it becomes a word in season, not just a truth, however true that truth is, but it becomes a seasonable word to the person who hears it. So you provide or you speak and that provision can be very simple. Uh, the Lord himself spoke of giving a cup of cold water uh, to the person who is weary. I think perhaps that the idea there is, <clears throat> is not just the simplicity of it, but there's also an idea there of going to an effort for it, because a cup of cold water is probably one that you had to maybe go a distance for, rather than a cup of uh, warm water. But the, the idea in any case is that you just alleviate. You do what you can do to alleviate that person's need. So whether you provide or you pray, sometimes you can only pray because no provision is possible. But whether you provide or you pray, that is the law of Christ. That means that uh, the Lord wants us to come under each other's burdens. For example, if the Lord places in your providence someone who is burdened with grief, well, the scripture says, weep with those who weep. That means to come alongside them and to share that grief. If you are burdened, for example, uh, with loneliness, then the Word of God reminds you that he who will have friends must show himself to be friendly. I've lost count over the years of the number of people who uh, say that nobody is befriending them in a church. And it's very clear that they are not really willing to befriend anybody themselves. The scripture says that he who will have friends must show himself to be friendly. And perhaps sometimes if we maybe complain of our own loneliness, maybe the answer to that may be far more obvious than we think. 
that we are not actually willing to alleviate the loneliness of somebody else. We sit alone when somebody else is sitting alone. And perhaps saying, instead of saying, well, why is no one with me? You should say maybe, why am I not with them? Or again, maybe there is a very simple way in which you can alleviate someone's poverty. Uh, I would readily admit that people talk too casually and easily about poverty. Many of us don't really know what poverty actually is. But having said that, there may be more around us than we realise. And John warns us against just thinking about these things and talking about these things. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed, in action in other words, and in truth. By doing this, he says, we will know that we ourselves are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. What he says there is very, very interesting and profound. It's worth again elaborating on uh, perhaps another time, but a lack of assurance and inward distress can sometimes be caused by our failure to love in deed as opposed to loving in word and in tongue. Even the world itself tells us that talk is cheap. We, we all know that. It's easy to love in word and in tongue. But he says if we actually close our hearts from helping, then how does the love of God um, abide in such a person? So we're to bear each other's burdens like that. Doing so, by the way, is something that uh, binds us together as Christians. That's obviously so. Um, you know yourself how, how much it binds you to a fellow brother or sister when they show you a kindness. Um, prayer is the same. The, the more you pray for people, uh, not in general, uh, general prayers are one thing. They are of necessity sometimes vague uh, when you pray for nations or peoples or wars or whatever. We don't know them. But God usually puts people in your path who are far more of a test. The rich man could talk about poverty, but Lazarus was put at his gate by God. At his gate. So Lazarus became a test for the rich man every single time he went out the gate and when he came in his gate. Uh, so you could talk about poverty and helping the needy and God says, well here's one at your gate. At your gate. Now God puts people in our providence. They've got faces. They're flesh and blood. They've got names and we know them. We pass them. And these are the people that God challenges us with and calls us in connection with. Bear ye one another's burdens. And when that kind of uh, prayer begins, surely love grows and quickens. 
I remember reading many years ago that it was difficult to hate those for whom you pray. And how true it is. I mean, sometimes you find that you have a difficulty with a person and you start to nurse your difficulty and go over the reasons for the difficulty. But when you turn that to prayer that the Lord would have mercy upon them or that they would come to a better state of mind or that the Lord would help them in their difficulties, it's amazing how that changes because... Well, for that reason, it's very difficult to hate those for whom you pray. So, helping, praying, providing where you can, binds the Lord's people together. That is one reason why the Lord doesn't respond to your burden by simply taking it himself. What he does, he takes it and he puts it on your brother or sister. In so doing, the family is drawn together. Now, all that is true and right, but it can't take away from the fact that Paul is speaking here of a particular kind of burden. And the burden that he's really speaking about primarily is someone carrying the burden of an unexpected sin in their lives. Unexpected to themselves, probably. Certainly unexpected to us. That burden of sin and its consequences. And they include guilt. They also include discouragement. And perhaps even for a long time after that sin has been committed, a sense of uselessness. Uselessness. Perhaps never being restored into God's usefulness again. I'll come to a couple of examples of that in a moment, but let me begin with this idea of unexpected sin. By unexpected sin, I mean a sin that's not really part of somebody's life, but they've just fallen into it, or as the scripture says here in verse 1, overtaken in a trespass. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, now What does it mean to be overtaken in a trespass? Well, that takes us back to the important distinction at the end of chapter 5 between the flesh and the spirit. Now, we read the passage. Some of you will know it very well. Paul's point there is that there is a, a constant warfare in the Christian's heart. And it's caused by the fact that the old nature is still there, and they know it. The new nature is there too, and it is governed by the Holy Spirit of God. And that power is greater than the old nature that is in them. In other words, the Christian's default condition is not that he's half the time sinning outwardly and half the time holy. The Christian's default condition is that he has crucified the flesh. The Christian's default condition is that he is alive in the Spirit. He's crucified the flesh with its passions and its lusts so that they no longer practice those things that they used to. Now, the apostle gives a long list of fleshly behavior. It's only a specimen list. It's fairly detailed. It's not exhaustive, but it's nearing there. Some of them are sexual, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. These are various kinds of sexual sin. 
idolatry and sorcery. They are to do with the spiritual side of life. Then there's things that have to do with relationships, contention, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions. He mentions envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. Revelries are um, parties with drink which also degenerate into immoral behaviour of one kind or another. And he says in connection with these things, I've told you, I'm telling you beforehand, before I visit you again in Galatia, I'm telling you beforehand, as I've also told you in the past, this is nothing new to you, he says, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's quite stark about that. If these things are somehow uh, habitual or characteristic in your life, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You might like to think you are, and people might even tell you that you are. He says you're not. And that's true of all these things. Those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are Christ's have crucified that flesh with its affections and its lusts. But of course, even so, it still remains the case that all these things are still alive in the Christian's heart. They're all there. They're kept under, but they're all there. And at any given time, they may arise. They may arise. In other words, the Christian does not live in sin, but sin lives in the Christian. There's a huge difference between these two things. They sound alike. There is actually a universe of a difference between these two things. The Christian does not live in sin, but sin does live in the Christian. And there are various points where a Christian can be overtaken by a sin. In other words, he doesn't practice it. It's not his habit. It's not his lifestyle. But lo and behold, perhaps suddenly, unexpectedly to himself or to others, (coughs) he's overtaken. (coughs) Paul even speaks here. He's warning the Galatians in connection with people who have started to bite and devour each other. Verse 15 of chapter 5. And again, at the end of chapter 25, he says, if we are alive in the Spirit, then let's walk in the Spirit. Let's prove it. Let's prove it by walking in the Spirit. Let us not, he says, become conceited, provoking each other and envying each other. Now, there was obviously another outbreak, you would say, of the flesh. Now, we see this all through the Bible. I wouldn't call Peter a denier of Christ, would you? No, you wouldn't. He was a faithful apostle of the Lord, but he did deny the Lord. So although we wouldn't call him a Christ denier, he did deny the Christ. Would you call David an adulterer? No. Did he commit adultery? Yes. Would you call Noah a drunkard? No. Did he get drunk? Yes. What happened to these good men of God? They were overtaken in a fault. Disastrous consequences, especially in one of these cases, but they were overtaken in a fault. And at that point, they're burdened. There's a sin line on them, 
and the consequences of that sin will be there too. <laughs> David, of course, was spared death. I mean, David himself, although he was a king, should have actually died uh, for, for his double sin of adultery and uh, culpable murder. Uh, in, a, in, a, in an intervention by God, he was not actually put to death, but nonetheless God said that the sword would not depart from his house. That there would be trouble in his home from that day forward, and it was there. But David, even prior to being told that, no peace. He was nine months a miserable man. Nine months confessing sin in his own way to God, but not confessing it really. That's easy to do. It's easy to confess sin with your lips while all the time you're blaming somebody else or blaming circumstances. But Sheba's fault, why was she there at that time? God's fault. Why did he allow Bathsheba to be there at that time and me where I could see her? But of course, while you're thinking these thoughts deep down, you can say, forgive me my sin. Ah, but have you seen your sin? Are you face to face with your sin, David? Not really. And deep down he knew it. Tells us in Psalm 32 that his body was wasting away that he felt like a man who was dying even though he was alive. He felt like he was being crushed and drying up, roaring all the day long. You can, it's a very graphic way of describing how he was in his spirit and in his body. When Peter denied the Lord, he went out and he cried bitterly. You know yourself that he got repentance for that, part of which came because John, his brother, did not let him go, but carried a burden for him. Part of it because for a long time afterwards, Peter thought he would never preach the gospel again. He thought he was not worthy to preach the gospel again. Even though the Lord had given him forgiveness, there was no way that Peter was ever going to break the bread of life for the people of God again. That is a burden that Peter was carrying. Now that's what I mean by saying that sin and its consequences make long-term burdens for the people of God. The other things are very real too. The things I mentioned like grief how much people need to come alongside those who are burdened with grief or loneliness or all these things. But sin and its consequences are what really matters here. <laughs> now, what's to be done when someone is burdened like this? Well, Paul says to the Galatians, restore such a person. If a person is overtaken by a sin, he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a person. The Greek word translated restore means to mend or fix something that's broken. It's used of the apostles when they were just fishermen. When the Lord called them and they were fixing their nets or mending their nets. That means that they had a net that was useful. It became useless and so they're restoring it to usefulness. That's exactly what's meant here too. 
Here you have a, a useful Christian who is suddenly burdened because they've been overtaken in a fault and they are in a position of, let me just say, relative uselessness. And God is calling whoever it is in providence to reach out and to help alleviate the burden of such a person. Restore it. Make them what God would have them be. Make David again a king who ruled in the fear of God. Make Peter again a preacher of the word. That reminds us that Christians are meant to be useful and healthy. We're not meant to be perpetually sick. Um, Of course there is a sense in which we're perpetually sick. Because we're carrying this problem with us all the time. But we're not supposed to be walking around there as people who are being defeated at every turn. We are supposed to be, as Paul says, walking in the Spirit because we are alive in the Spirit of God. As Christian people, we are meant to be restored all the time to a place of usefulness and blessing in the kingdom of God. That's what we're meant to be to each other. That's very, very important. Sometimes people's expectations are too low here. They say, oh, well, we're sinners anyway, and we're always going to be striving against sin, so what does sin matter? Sin matters a lot. matters in ourselves, and it matters in others. Restore. God wants us healthy, healthy Christians. We won't be perfectly healthy, but like I said in the, in the newsletter, we will be faithfully healthy. Who's to do the restoration? Well, what Paul says here is that you who are spiritual restore such a person. Who's that? The word spiritual is used in two ways in the Bible. It's first of all got a a technical sense of people who have the Holy Spirit. In other words, Christians. The world is divided into the natural man and the spiritual man. As Paul tells us in Romans, the natural man does not have the Spirit of God in them. The spiritual man is spiritual because he does have the Spirit of God in him. Christians are spiritual people. Spiritual people are Christians. Unbelievers are carnal, they're sometimes called, or natural. They do not possess the Spirit of God. So if you're a Christian today, you're a spiritual person. I know the world uses the word in another way. People who are interested in the spirit world, but that's not how the Bible uses But there is another meaning to spiritual in the Bible. It means people who are particularly close to God. We use it that way ourselves. For example, if if I pointed to somebody and said, see that person, that's a spiritual person, you know immediately that I'm not just saying that person's a Christian. You know that I'm saying that that person is an eminent Christian or an outstanding Christian or someone, as Paul is saying, someone who's walking in the Spirit, very much so, very close to the Lord, very prayerful, very interested and consumed with sanctification and being holy just as God is holy. Now that is what the Apostle means here. He talks to the Corinthians at one point and he calls them carnal. He says, 
I'd love to speak to your spiritual people, but because of your behavior, he says, you are carnal. It doesn't mean by that that they're technically not Christians, but it does mean that they're behaving like non-Christians. Now, when he says you are spiritual, restore such a person, what he means is, you who are walking right, restore those who are not. Restore those who are not. And that's very important because how can I really help you unless I'm genuinely being helped myself? How could I possibly be a restorer of your soul if my own soul is not restored? It's easy to make a mistake here and it's easy to misunderstand what I'm saying. Let me give you an example that's possibly a little easier to get a hold of. Let's say, for example, that I was going to to give a series of five lectures on how to pray with a, a disciplined, regular spiritual life. And you looked forward to such lectures and you came to hear such lectures. And let's say there was a question time after the first one. And you said to me, um, do you have a regular, disciplined prayer life yourself? And I said, well, actually, I don't. Your response to that would be, well... Why are you telling us how to have a regular disciplined prayer life? You, you can only tell us how to have a regular disciplined prayer life if you've got one. If you yourself have not discovered the reason, the, the secret of having a disciplined regular prayer life, please stop the lectures. If you yourself are consumed in a particular sinful practice, it's not possible for you meaningfully Okay, you can do it externally, but it's not possible for you meaningfully to come alongside and say, oh, well, this, 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 and this is what you need to do. Uh, physician, heal thyself, surely. Now, that doesn't mean that to help another, you need to be perfect. This word perfect keeps appearing all the time. Nobody's perfect, right? Let's leave that to the side. But it does mean that your life needs to be regular and ordered before God. Confessing sin as it comes fighting sin all the time, walking uprightly, keeping the commandments as Zacharias and Elizabeth were, coming to the ordinances, respecting prayer meetings, coming to the house of God, all these things in their place. We are then qualified from a position of strength, not perfection, but a genuine position of strength to help another person. That doesn't mean that you have never slipped up, maybe even in that very area. In fact, it may be that having slipped up in that area may help you to counsel somebody else who's in that position. That's an entirely different thing. But if you're in it yourself, it's no use. You who are spiritual, restore such a person. And how's that to be done? Well, he says, with gentleness. Restore such a person with gentleness. What does that mean? With consideration. With care. And with compassion. And where does that care and compassion come from? Well, it comes first of all from the knowledge that you have of Christ yourself. If you've made any headway in the Christian life, 
you've come to know that Christ is caring and compassionate towards yourself. You know that you will have failed to marry us before, perhaps sometimes quite seriously. And maybe it's just been God's kindness that it never came up. But in other smaller ways, you know that God has shown you care and compassion. In fact, God has shown you that some things that you thought were quite small are not actually that small and wary to have dealt with you. According as you deserve, it would be very different. You wouldn't be sitting here the way you are today or me standing here too. He is caring and compassionate. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. I don't mean by that simply that he's forgiven them. Although, can I say such a thing? Simply that he has forgiven them. But even when he deals them with them in chastisement, it's not as we deserved. Not as we deserved. When the Lord said, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest, that's so true of us as Christians. I mean, we preach that text, rightfully so, to unconverted people. But is it just to them? No. How often have you been burdened as a Christian by this and that? And you came to the Lord who was what? Meek and lowly in heart. Had he lashed you? Had he just given you the law? Had he just dealt with you according to what you deserved? Where would we be? But we found him meek and lowly in heart. And he took us the way where we found rest again in our souls. He has care and compassion for you. So that's the primary reason you should be meek or gentle here in your dealing with someone overtaken by a fault. If you are spiritual, you will be caring and compassionate. If you're not caring and compassionate, you're not spiritual. If you're hard and judgmental, you're not spiritual. Now that doesn't mean that you can't be clinical. The Lord is very surgical when he deals with us, but he's caring and compassionate too. Your gentleness will also come from your knowledge of yourself. Because you're to consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Uh, No arrogance at all. That could be you. We often quote, was it Newton? I don't know who originally said it. There, but for the grace of God, go I. But do we mean that? Do we mean that? And even aside from that, there's still the the fact that it could be you now. Or it could be you tomorrow. A little lack of vigilance, a little lack of care. After all, David was not simply at his place of duty that day. And he was lying around in his room in the afternoon when his men were out at war and before the day was out his life had changed forever lack of sobriety lack of vigilance considering yourself lest you also be tempted how can we put a hand to someone else's need unless we realise that that's, that's our own weakness there it's right there that's our weakness God forbid that we should ever take the place that I couldn't have done that I couldn't have said that. I couldn't have failed in that way. I wouldn't have denied Christ around the campfire. I wouldn't have done that with Bathsheba. If we think 
we're above it. If we think we've earned our own spiritual health. If you think the fact that you are walking close to the Lord is because of you. You're not fit to help. Neither am I. Because we're sicker than we know ourselves to be. And if we try to counsel people then or help people, we'll just talk down to them. We'll talk down to them. And as Paul goes on to say, interestingly he says here in verse 3, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. What's the connection with verse 2? Well, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Who do we think we are if we think we're above that? We're nothing in ourselves. Therefore, he says, let each one examine his own work, in verse 4, and he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. In other words, let's take your own life, he says. Let's take your own work and our own behavior to the searchlight of God's word. And then, if we have reason to stand, we thank God we have reason to stand, but not in comparison with another. He says, as, as Christian people, we should not go around congratulating ourselves that, that we are not that. Not at all, he says. <clears throat> if we take our own work before God, we'll rejoice that we are kept thus far, hitherto, no more. And you will pray for God's grace for another day. Now, what does that restoration look like? Conscious my time's gone, but... First of all, it may involve a rebuke. Leviticus 19.17 says, Rebuke your brother, don't allow sin to lie on him. Very interesting commandment. Rebuke your brother, don't allow sin to lie on him. If if you see something wrong, this is not nosiness, it's not um, professional fault finders, but if you in love see something wrong, don't let sin lie on the person, God's word says, but rebuke that person. In other words, again, it's not going around pointing a finger, it's saying, this is wrong, it's not right in the sight of God. As well as rebuking, you pray for your brother. And at the same time, you pray for yourself, that you would be kept in a right spirit. And that that person would be restored to what God wanted them to be or would have them to be. The husband they were, the wife they were, the mother or the father, the church member or officer or minister. And as well as rebuking and praying, you will seek how you can help. And like I said earlier, charity begins there at home, in our own family, and in our own congregation. It will also mean that you will warn them about the consequences of going on in that path. What will happen if they persist? As Peter says, beware that you're not a dog going back to its own vomit and a pig going back to its own wallowing in the mire. In other words, as we thought on Thursday night, you will endeavour to encourage That takes me just, in closing, I said this was a very uh, imbalanced thing. In closing, it takes me to the second load. Because it says, 
in verse 5 that each person shall bear his own pack, carry his own cargo, carry his own load. This is a particular burden that nobody else shares. Nobody can share it. And in fact, when that person has it, you can do nothing about it. They've got their own pack. You've got your own pack. What is it? Well, very simply, it's all that we are and everything that we're carrying to the judgment seat of Christ, where we all appear. Your brother is going there. You're going there. And your pack is that collection of thoughts, words and deeds that form your life. That pack that's going to be opened and poured out before the judgment seat of Christ. It contains your attitude to your brothers. It contains your prayer life. It contains whether you have loved or hated. It contains whether you helped or didn't help. It contains all that. And you carry that yourself. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that he may render according to the deeds done in the body, whether they are good or evil. And there's no getting away from that pack. It's opened. Just yours, and you give your account for it. And I suppose the reason why the Apostle Paul mentions it here, it's, it's in connection with our motives and attitudes. Was there love in it? Was there kindness in it? Was there grace in it? Was there prayer in it? Was there compassion in it? Was there care in it? God knows. You know. Is it not better to open that pack now? As he says here, let each man examine his own work, he says, and he will have reason to rejoice. If you have a good look inside that pack that you're taking to the judgment seat, can you find these things? If you do, thank God again for it, because what have you that you didn't receive? If not, it's time to put them in your pack and to get them in your pack. There's burdens we can share. There's burdens that we can't. And whether you're a Christian or not here today, just let me leave you with that thought that each one shall bear his own load. You, you're, you're carrying a pack today. It's just yourself. Thoughts, words and deeds. That's all you are. You're a collection of thoughts, words and actions. And that pack is going up to God and you're going to give an account for that pack, everything inside it. And where do you think you will be on that day? Will you be taken to the right hand of God and to heaven, or you'll be dismissed on the left hand and hell? Eternity of life or eternity of grief? The choice lies with you. The only way of deliverance is the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon him and you will be saved. Let's stand to pray. Lord our God, we pray for a greater sensitivity ourselves to both these burdens. And we pray not to be like that rich man who could bypass Lazarus, and we often fear that we are too quick to dismiss things that lie to our own hand and are in our own sphere. Lord, help us to be willing uh, to help others. 
and to do so either with provision of word or goods or indeed with prayer. We ask your blessing upon the word that we might take it to heart, that the devil would not take it from us before we have even left this building. Do us good in these things, we pray, in the precious name of Christ, O Lord. Amen. (coughs) Let's uh, close our worship singing in Psalm 112. And at verse 4. The close of this verse describes the upright man, that's the godly man, as compassionate, merciful, and righteous. In verse 5, he shows his favour and he lends to others and he guides his affairs with discretion to the end. And because... He walks closely with God, there is nothing that ever shall him move. The righteous man's memorial shall everlasting prove. So, four to six uh, to God's praise. Let's stand to sing.